afternoon, everyone. Please sit comfortably. So this is the first day of settling in a session. Made a good start. The title of this talk today is something along the lines of um, the stress response, the stress response, um, Zen and human morality. And um, it's very much influenced by um, a book I came across um, over the last few months, which is written by an American psychologist called um, Dasha Nabais. And for anyone listening to the podcast, if they'd like me to spell it out so you can Google it, it's Dasha, D-A-R-C-I-A, Nervais, N-A-R-V-A-E-Z. And her book is called Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality. And she also has another book out at the moment called The Evolved Nest, which is about raising children into being good emotionally and moral people. Um, and she's a, a, a woman of, um, a psychologist of Spanish-American descent, very worthwhile books. And she actually um, uh, makes mention of Buddhism as a kind of a, a religion, spiritual practice, which is very much in line with her perspective. And that's why it resonated with me so much. So I'd just like to share some of that with you in a in a talk today. Um, many of the things that she mentioned in the book were not new to me. Um, they were things that I knew, but somehow when I read this book, like it just joined all the dots for me and um, made sense to me in a very meaningful kind of way. But the way human beings have understood morality um, in the past, well, first we had um, religious doctrines, you know, and theology as a way of understanding morality, like original sin and the story around that, and Adam and Eve, etc., and God. And then philosophically, um, at least in Western culture, people started to understand morality in terms of human reasoning, and like the 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 um, the the, the privileging of reason over emotion, reasons being seen as good and emotion a bit wild and, and, and negative. And what's groundbreaking about what's coming through now and is so compatible with understanding our own practice is um, there's now a way of understanding human morality based on human emotional development and how we regulate our emotions. And basically, in a, in a brief summary, what this perspective is, is that all human beings, like all animals, we're just, we're another animal, we're continuous with other species of animals, we're all born with a survival instinct. And it's there to help us to survive from predators, fear, etc., protect the young, protect ourselves, and uh, we all have that because we all want to survive and live. And without it, we don't get very far, either as human beings or as animals. We need a survival instinct um, hardwired into us right from the very beginning. What happens, though, 
um, when that survival instinct becomes um, accentuated through um, chronic stress reactions or through trauma and so on, or through like children being neglected, um, instead of it just being an immediate few seconds or few minutes that it's switched on, you know, so you can run away or you can fight or whatever, it's almost like it's chronically switched on all the time or very quickly switched on, you know, um, with very sort of um, uh, sometimes through perceived stress rather than through actual real-life stress. And then the more um, we live in that kind of survival stress reactivity all the time, we generate certain emotions and certain behaviours out of that. And one of them, for instance, is um, seeking behaviours. So um, when an animal is stressed, or say particularly when a human being is stressed, um, in simple terms, what we do is retail shopping, retail therapy, right? Um, just do something and look for sort of different interesting things as a way of distracting yourself. Or we go surfing the internet, you know, or we go into addictive behaviours like trying new drugs, you know, new forms of alcohol, even uh, being excessive with anything like excessive travelling or excessive hoarding of money, whatever it might be. Um, but they're unhealthy kind of behaviours which are, which are driven by a chronic stress reaction. Another one is rage and all of its variations. Rage, which can be mild, like frustrated, annoyed, irritated to being um, homicidal. Uh, all of its different manifestations is a manifestation of stress. Now, a lot of people, when they're in rage, don't think that they're stressed. If you, if you ask them, are you stressed about something? Oh, I know, I'm just really angry. Uh, when it's really obvious to everyone else around them that they're stressed out of their heads. You know, their pulse is going, they're red in the face, etc. And what we all, not just other people, us, don't realise when we're in a rage is that what happened, first of all, is that we were threatened by something, right? And then when we were threatened, it triggered off our survival mechanism, our stress reaction, you know, kicks off and immediately we're into some kind of fighting aggressive mode. And it happens so quickly that we don't even, we forget about the threat because our, our, our body is telling us just to survive now, right? And um, a, a, lot of, a lot of people don't, simply do not recognise um, when they're in rage, that they're actually stressed or were stressed initially in, in the beginning. Another stress reaction is fear, you know, which leads to flight, you know, getting away from danger. So it could be getting away from pain, um, could be getting away from something unpleasant, something dangerous in our social or um, physical environment. And then another one, which is a form of fear, but it's more social, is panic. 
And panic is the fear of not belonging. And belonging is such a foundational, significant type of human need, as it is with other species. They all got to belong to a tribe or a family and so on to survive. So when babies um, are separated from their mothers, they panic, right? like other animals. Or even as human beings, when we get separated from someone and we don't know where they are, we can go into a panic. Right? So it's not, it's not a fear based on getting um, physically hurt or anything. It's, a, it's the fear of being disconnected or even being um, shunned, like being kicked out of the accepted you know, um, environment or family can create a, fa- a panic reaction. And then another, the last one, is another reaction of the stress response is numbing out. So that you, it's kind of like the logic of it is, well, this is so unpleasant and so threatening, I'll just numb my emotions out so I don't feel anything. Right? And psychologically, this comes through in variations like dissociative experiences where kind of the escape when there's no escape, just go into kind of a la-la land, you know. And um, other other versions of it are numbing out, freezing, so you either run away or fight, just do nothing, just freeze. Fainting um, is another form of it. And in biological terms, uh, you know, all of the rage, fear, panic, etc., are all sympathetic nervous system responses, you know, where you're activated to do something. And the numbing out and the dissociation, even the shame responses that come from it, they're all parasympathetic nervous system responses, not in the healthy sense of calming, but in the sense of collapse, shutting down, you know, to deal with things. So that's the kind of... um, um, biology behind it and one of the things we all need to consider in this as Zen students and as human beings is that we all have stress responses and um, but sometimes we don't recognize them sometimes they're very very mild like you might have had a, a mild stress response this morning about getting here on time you know, um, it motivates you to make sure you, you're fulfilling a responsibility or an obligation, but you maybe wouldn't have called it a stress response because it's so mild. Some people get a stress response wondering what happened when they dress themselves in the morning. Should I put that on or that on? Does that go with that? You know, it's a very, it's a very mild response. We wouldn't even call it stress. So it can range from that very mild under the radar type of thing to something which is moderate and then very severe and extreme. And the more extreme it is, the more these reactions of seeking rage, fear, panic, numbing out will occur. And one of the things we need to remember about it, um, to state the obvious, is stress is an unpleasant experience. So we want to avoid it. And this is where it starts to link into Buddhism and Zen practice. Probably if you've read Joko's books and um, 
or heard my talks, you know, a lot of her teaching was about how we have an aversion to unpleasantness. Mm -hmm. And a lot of her teaching was about let's let's acknowledge it, the unpleasantness, let's face into the unpleasantness rather than doing all these other things as a way of avoiding it. So that where it's, that's where it starts to link in to the Dharma. And where it links into it as well is that when you think of grasping an aversion, they, 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 they are coming out of stress reactions. Like just wanting more and more and more of something, you know, we're trying to get away from something unpleasant. Or the third one, do you know, ignorance or apathy, is the numbing out experience into indifference, right? So this is kind of like the psychology behind and the biology behind these familiar terms to us, you know, grasping aversion, apathy, which are the, the causes of, of suffering and dissatisfaction as we know it in Dharma practice. So in terms of practice, it's always important for us um, through our, our mindfulness to check in at various times, particularly when we're being reactive and checking into our, our physicality, like our body and our environment. It's like, almost like we're asking this question to myself, am I stressed right now or not? Right. Um, and as a way of understanding why we're reacting in a certain way. And it's very beneficial to do this, like to identify, acknowledge it non-judgmentally as, one, as a way of just understanding our own experience. Particularly when we get into rageful or, or angry situations. And to give an example from, from my own life, like you, can, you can think if you practice Zen long enough, and particularly if you're in the role of a teacher, that you can get trapped in this idea that you're calm all the time. Like that's my identity, I'm a, I'm a calm person. Right? I'm a cool Zen dude, right? That's, that's the persona that you can get caught in. But if you do, you're not, you're not necessarily in touch with reality, with your own reality. It's just an identity you're trying to live up to. And so therefore it's not really a, a true Zen practice, it's false. It's clinging to an identity. But for example, from my own life, I realised that sometimes when I was driving, I, get stru- I, I would get angry at other drivers or the lights not changing when I wanted to them start to become critical of other drivers so I could get I'm getting a rage response and then I, and then if I practice this I go okay you're getting a rage response are you stressed and I can go yeah I am and how come you're stressed because because I need to get to this doctor's appointment on time and it's very much part of my value system to be on time for things. So I'm getting stressed about it and I think I'm going to be late. So behind the angry reaction is this stress response. Mm-hmm. That's just an example of it, you know, a, a minor example of it. But if we reflect on it, they can be more extreme than that. And then what happens? So it's very important in our everyday life to recognise that stress reactions occur involuntarily. Like we don't, we don't actually have a lot of control over the fact um, that we get stressed. We can manage it, you know, the best way we can. But sometimes things just pop up 
in our life and suddenly you are in a stress reaction. Um, So it's important to um, have this non-judgmental perspective that we can't necessarily control what comes up. Where we do have some modicum of control, and again, this is where Zen practice really starts to kick in at this point, we can simply acknowledge that we're stressed and that we're feeling rage, fear, numbing out, whatever it might be. But when we start to add a storyline to it, you know, um, you made me do this or it's it's that certain race of people made me do it or these kind of people made me do this or whatever. As soon as we start to get a storyline going, and particularly uh, when it comes to wars and so on, not only do we have a storyline going, but we have an ideology going as well. And it may be a nationalistic ideology or a racially based ideology or a gender based ideology. As soon as we've got a stress reaction, like fear and anger in particular, and then it gets linked into an ideology that, um, not that all ideologies are um, negative, but what she she refers to as a vicious imagination. So imagination starts to play with the stress reaction and it's a vicious imagination. And put those two things together, a vicious imagination, particularly where there's a storyline or an ideology and you're angry and fearful and that, well, you can see in the world today, war, you know, on many different fronts. Um, that's what's occurred. And then you get, and then you get political leaders fueling the anger and fueling the fear, which pours gasoline on the fire more and more. It stirs people's survival instincts up more and more. So the more we're in this chronic um, stress reaction state the more we're in the self-centred dream because survival is about me. And the more that survival mechanism is, is, you know, increased, perpetuate, fed within us, then the morality of it is we're in the self-centred dream and our behaviours will then move towards being antisocial rather than pro-social, right? Pro-social is a very interesting word to use. I'm actually using it a lot more because we usually only think of, we usually only usually use the word antisocial. If you think of it, we very rarely use the word pro-social. But human morality is pro-social behaviour. Mm-hmm. It's about going beyond what's just good for me as an individual, but what's good for everyone. You know, and what's good for everyone is going to be good for me, right? It, it loops back. And there's many examples in nature of um, pro-social behaviours. You look at bees, you look at ants, you, know, you look at different species, is that they all know how to cooperate together for the sake of the whole. And one could say that human beings, when we're acting from our true nature, when we're not caught in this chronic stress reaction, we're calm, we're playful, we're not hierarchical, and we naturally become pro-social, right? That's, that's what our precepts bring us back to, you know, about cultivating generosity and not being critical of others, etc., etc. They're all pro-social behaviours. Um, so there is, a, there is a kind of biology 
behind all of this um, if we understand our own stress responses. So when, when we have these natural biological reactions and then we get caught up in a, a vicious storyline, um, then we turbocharge it. But there's also another version of it as well. We have the stress reaction and instead of going into the um, anger-fear, those sympathetic nervous system responses, we go into the parasympathetic system version of it, which is to numb out. So there's vicious imagination. There's also what's referred to as, a, as detached imagination. And detached imagination is indifference. So we see, we see um, negative behaviours happening in the world. It's like, I don't care. I just care about me or my family or whatever. And we don't, we don't have a sense of the impact that it has on, on others in any kind of way. So between those two, vicious imagination and detached imagination, as Dasha Navaz says, they're the sources where all the evil in the world comes from. You know, that, that turbocharged by a chronic stress reaction. So whenever we have these chronic stress reactions and, we, and they're accompanied by a vicious imagination or a detached imagination, there's a, there's a downward shift in our, in our moral behaviour. Mm-hmm. that becomes impactful on others. <clears throat> she describes, she comes from an American culture, she describes the type of character which will become successful, successful in inverted commas, in American culture, because she comes from an American culture, the, the stereotype is someone who's competitive, insecure and hierarchical. Mm-hmm. And as much as I don't want to point the finger at American culture, it's in our culture as well. Yeah? Be competitive, and you don't, you're insecure, but you don't even recognise you're insecure. But it drives your competitiveness and hierarchy in a self-centred way. Um, in a materialistic, superficial kind of way, you become successful. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you could say it's true of, of our culture as well. Um, and when we reflect on... So that's kind of like the false self. But what the true self is, and you see this in children you know, who have been really well nurtured, you know, haven't been traumatised and so on. And you see in that our, a, 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 a sense of our true nature is that they're calm and they're playful and they're not hierarchical. Mm-hmm. So you could say that's our true nature. When we're calm, playful, not hierarchical, we're pro-social, we're connected to others, we're connected to life, we're connected to all forms of life, not just human life. And then we act accordingly. Right? And and we minimize doing any kind of any, any we minimize doing any kind of harm. 
and we, we generate a sense of joyfulness and love and community that comes out of that. So that's the basis of, when we look at it, you know, the psychology behind some of what we do here. And as she, she just doesn't outline what the problem is, she actually outlines what the solutions are as well, about half of the book is that. And you can see a lot of the solution to this um, being in our many practices like meditation, mindfulness, reflecting on our behaviour through the precepts, you know, not getting caught up in vicious imagination or vicious stories or getting caught up in detached imagination, you know, and indifference. And and playfulness as well. You know, you look into the the Zen tradition in particular and in the literature, the literature is mostly playful literature. You know, Khan study is playful. It may not appear like that at first from the outside, but once you get into it, you see it's about play and the and, and the stories are playful and the recordings of dialogues between teachers and students and teachers and teachers is a play of words. And so all of our practices practice cultivates it's going back into that that calm, playful state. And what it also involves, as we remind ourselves in that first sutra that we recite, the purification sutra, all the harm and suffering ever created by me since of old, it's sort of it's recognizing um, the harm that we have caused in the past, you know, or may even in the immediate past might have created. And so kind of it's an, an acknowledging of that. And maybe there's another dimension of that that's worth mentioning as well. All the harm and suffering ever created by me since of old, that sort of implies me personally as an individual, what have I done? Um, but what we understand now about genetics and epigenetics and interpersonal trauma is that we we inherit, we come into this world with a sort of a maybe excessive stress response from what we've inherited through intergenerational trauma, through genetics, through epigenetics, right? And so, um, there's some kind of inheritance comes through in our culture you know, that maybe leads us to be more anxious or more shut off or whatever it might be. And it was not something that we're personally responsible for, um, but it's a kind of a, a basis um, where we started from. But most importantly, like in Buddhism, we recognise where the problem came from. Um, but like in, in this book, the Dharma is also giving us a solution to it as well. Right? That's where all of our practices come from. Okay? This is where we started, we're suffering, and this is the path that leads to you reducing that suffering or ending that suffering. And this also fits for what we understand in biology and evolutionary psychology is that human beings have evolved enough to the point that we self-organise. We have this ability, okay, we might have these certain circumstances and tendencies, but we all have this marvellous 
gift at self-organising. Um, and we can consciously recognise what's happened and what the problem is, and then we practice mindfulness. We practice things even like the Alexander technique, you know, which is similar to it, or Tai Chi and things like that. And we can relearn or unlearn unhelpful things and we we can shift the way that we experience ourselves in this world. So we come back to this true nature, this true nature of equanimity, playfulness, you know, joy, love, compassion. So in a nutshell, that's what our journey over the next few days is. Thank you.